We stand before Jesus. Many of the things I'll say today will assume some basics. One, the early church was ethnically, culturally disparate, different. You had many Jewish believers who brought their older Jewish way of life, the ceremonies, the feasts, the rituals that God had commanded in his word. They pointed forward to Christ, but when they embraced Christ, they continued to follow those things. And you had new Gentile believers who saw very early on and somewhat surprisingly that those were shadows that had given way to the fullness of Christ. So they didn't feel consciously bound to observe these. But these two in the same, put these two in the same congregation, and you're probably going to have some fun. It got really bad in a congregation, for example, like Galatia, where the Judaizers took the basic idea of, we're going to observe this feast day, and we're not going to eat on this day, and we're going to eat this meat, etc. And they said, this is a condition for salvation. This is what was told to the Gentiles. And you can understand in the epistle to the Galatians as to why Paul said, if we follow that, you have abandoned the gospel. But here, no one was saying, well, you've got to follow these things or you can't be a Christian. But it would have been very easy for him, who calls the weaker brothers Jewish believers, to kind of look down on the Gentiles for eating things they thought were unclean, or observing days they thought, hey, we don't have to observe these. Then, of course, the stronger believers from the Gentiles would have maybe, I hope not, but maybe snickered a little bit. I can't believe that they are still believing we've got to do this, that we can't eat certain things. So the admonition that Paul has given so far is the weak, you must not judge the strong. If you have your convictions, have them before God on these secondary points. He doesn't tell them or us that we are free to believe what we want about the Trinity or about predestination, or about obeying the Ten Commandments, or about opposing perversity. Those are secondary, not secondary issues, nor were they in question here. These would be issues like ceremonial things. We have a few, like what kind of bread to use in the Lord's Supper. How fervently do we observe the Lord's Day? Does it begin Sunday evening or does it begin Sunday morning? These are things, somewhat lesser issues, but the fundamental issue is we must keep the Sabbath day and we must endeavor even on secondary points to have clear persuasions in our own mind. But it would have been difficult in those days and we've had our own difficulties with such matters. Take other issues. We've all heard of church splits over scratch-your-head issues or people have left the church because of one word in a sermon that they felt that they had to divide over because they just couldn't stay there any longer. Do you understand 
These are the kinds of secondary issues that Paul basically says here, don't do that. He says, as we saw last week, don't judge your brother. He's not supposed to judge you either. You're supposed to be encouraging each other toward greater Christ-likeness. Don't try to engage someone who has a different opinion with you simply to argue. If you need to talk about secondary issues, talk about them, but do so humbly and gently and realize that what we have in common as disciples is that we are seeking to live under the Lord. That is the dominant passion of the life for the, of life for the disciples. We are seeking to study His truth, to study the clear commands that He has given us in His Word and in areas of wisdom, where maybe not everyone has the same level of light and understanding of trying to apply God's Word. So we should talk about these things humbly, patiently, ready to learn from one another, not ready to rebuke and tear someone down as if that is what God has called you to do. So pick up, so we pick up here in verse 10 today, and he asks these two questions again, because he's now going to give us another reason why we mustn't judge our brothers. So he says, in effect, why is there so much squabbling over these secondary issues? These are not essential. Now again, here it's not that John 3.16 is not essential. It's not doctrines and the Ten Commandments in that regard, but secondary issues of ceremony or even practices that not everyone is completely unified on in their own thinking or fully persuaded in their own minds as he has encouraged us to be, though, in verse 5. Why so much bickering and coldness among Christians? The word there in the second question of verse 5, in the old King James, why do you set at naught, or why do you treat with contempt? Why do you ridicule your brother? Notice what he says next. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In the immediate context, if we judge one another, we are taking Jesus' robes off of him and trying to wear them ourselves. But he is the only judge, not us. We are all brethren. And sometimes we do have to talk about secondary issues. And there have been times over the years where our elders have had to come to some of you and say, hey, we know not everyone sees it this way, but this is the way we are going to do this at RHC for the following reasons. When we have to do that kind of thing, there needs to be, of course, humility, patience, a meek and quiet spirit. Remember, God gave us two ears, but only one mouth, which is why God said, let every man be swift to hear, but slow to speak, because we are all brethren, and we have one master. It seems kind of strange and very sobering to bring up these here, but we need to remember that when we judge those within the body who love Jesus, 
for secondary non-essential things, we're basically saying, listen, I don't care what's going to happen at the end, but right now, my opinion has to reign supreme. Everyone needs to take my view on things. Everyone needs to yield to my superior way of thinking and understanding, and we forget that it is before Christ that we will stand not one another. Let's talk about that phrase for a minute. It does seem a little bit uncomfortable, and I have squirmed a little over this line because somehow we have got to balance out that we must stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account and that we are covered in the blood of Christ. There should be no question to anyone in this room who knows Scripture at all that there is coming a day when the books will be opened and when the works and lives of all will be made manifest. This is a given biblical teaching. But how do we reconcile that with the blood of Christ? How do we reconcile that with no one will lay a charge against God's elect? Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation to those that be in Christ Jesus. Now, you're going to have to listen carefully for a few minutes because there are various layers that Paul doesn't unravel here, but for us to profit, we need to kind of go through them just a little bit. Everyone is going to have to stand before God on the last day. We don't know how this is possible, but the limit of our imagination is not the limit of what God can do. He will divide the nations before him, the sheep and goats. Notice they are already put in sheep and goat categories. So there is no question that when we as Christians stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there is no uncertainty as to what our ultimate destiny is. We are in the sheep line. Why are we there? Because we have trusted in Christ. We recognize you, Lamb of God, bore my judgment on the tree. I can't come into condemnation again because your sacrifice, Lord, is so perfect. Your intercession is so powerful that everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved without any possibility of double jeopardy, any possibility of hell at all. So hearing that, everyone here today should say, I'm going to get into that sheep line. I'm going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and lay down my silly pride or my lust, and repent of whatever it is that needs to be repented of, so that when I do stand before Him, as John says in 1 John four seventeen, I can have boldness on the day of judgment. Real boldness, because I am in the sheep line covered in the blood of Christ, because I believed on the name of the Lord Jesus. That's one layer. So don't even think that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there will be an uh-oh moment where you think, maybe I didn't believe on, in my heart of heart of heart of hearts enough. You know how much we believe in our heart of heart of heart of hearts has nothing to do with, with whether or not we are saved? Because it is not our faith that saves us. 
It is Christ that saves us. So we can have itty-bitty faith, as Jesus said, mustard seed faith, tiny faith, faith that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But it is looking at the Lamb of God, and therefore it receives His righteousness in place of its sin. But don't think that our boldness in the day of judgment doesn't mean we won't tremble. I think this is why the apostle brings this up here, because the judgment of the sheep is not going to be a judgment as to ultimate destiny of heaven or hell. In the same way as unbelievers who will pray for the earth to open up and swallow them, to hide them from the wrath of God and of the Lamb. And if you don't know the Savior, that is the line you will be in. You'll be in the line that when you see the majestic Christ, who won't be a friend to you, he will have the sword of justice drawn. And it will be too late to cozy up to him. And it will be too late to ask for forgiveness. So I urge you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ now. But if we do, there's still a sort of judgment. But it is a motivating judgment. And it is a humbling judgment. It is an inspiring judgment because it will be a judgment as to faithfulness. Do you remember the parables? The kingdom of God is like a rich landowner going on a far journey who dispersed talents to his servants. And in another parable like that, Jesus said, Now occupy till I come. And in each of these parables, the landowner, who is Jesus, comes back and he does an accounting. Wife, did you love me? Servants, did you serve me? My brothers and sisters, did you love me? You see, that is where the trembling comes in. Because we will see him then. That's right. We will see him. So no more faith is needed. And we will look upon him whom our sins have pierced and we won't want to bring to him, Lord, this is what I have to offer you for all of your grace poured out to me, all of your kindness to me, and that you laid down your life for on the cross for me. So here's what I'm going to offer you, judgmentalism. Here is what I'm going to offer you. I worked my life to make sure everyone had the same opinion on secondary things that I do. You see, that's why Paul brings this up. Because we need to remember, not only are we not the judges of our brothers, but we are going to stand before the judge, everyone without exception. And we will all give an account for ourselves. Is this what we want to offer him? Or we could expand it. Do we want to offer him? Well, I tried to have a little bit of Jesus, but I also wanted the vanities and the fun things of life. I tried to serve two masters. I knew what God wanted me to do, and at the same level, I wanted to do it, but I also really loved this, so I had to fudge a little bit around the lines here and there. Let me tell you something, Christian. You can do something about this before it happens. Because when you get there, 
it will be too late. And I do believe that there will be for those whom Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3, who are saved by fire, or barely saved, in other words, only because there was some root of faith in Christ. And although their work was but wood, hay, and straw that was burnt up, but because of even that small faith, they can offer the king when he comes to crown him with many crowns. So Paul brings this up, and it is used throughout the New Testament to be a motivating factor. Why is this? Because we are personally committed to a person, Jesus Christ. And you're going to stand before him, beloved. Notice he says in the Gospels, If any man will come after an idea of religion, let him come after me. No. If anyone will come after, well, those are really nice people over there, and they look like me, and they are in the same socioeconomic strata, and they've been educated like me, and they hold the same political views that I do. No, that is not why we are disciples. You can have all of those things and still go to hell. We are disciples because we are personally committed to the lovely one, that bright and shining star, the eternal Son of God who humbled Himself and took upon Himself our flesh and bore our curse. (coughs) When it should have been us with the guilty verdict, He took that guilty verdict. When we did not deserve for God to ever say to us, not guilty, We receive that through Jesus. We are personally committed to Him, to judge, to the judge, to the Savior. So this is said to us to motivate us, to motivate us to faithfulness, for example, to love one another, because that is the immediate context to tolerate our foibles, differences on secondary matters to build one another up in the most holy faith. Why? Because we're going to see Him. and We don't want to offer Him half-hearted. Hey, I'm in. That's all that counts. I'm in. I made it. But when we see Him, it won't be enough for my soul simply to think, Phew, I made it in because I will see Him. And I want to offer Him a life not perfect, Certainly flawed. Where on the best day, as Calvin used to say, we crawl towards heaven. But I want to offer him consecration that I tried to be humble. Will that be enough? Not really. But I don't want to come empty-handed. I want to come making use of the grace that he promised to me. That is why Paul warned the Corinthians, don't receive God's grace in vain. That's the reason for the parables on the talents. I don't want to give, well, here, Lord, here is what you gave me. I really didn't do anything with it, but here it is, back to you. Jesus just doesn't want his own back to him. He knows everything is his already. Where is the disciples' beating heart of love for Christ? That's what he wants. And that is what is really lacking in the church today. That is why we want new things. 
Because that means, of course, then we are living. You know, if we're doing something new and there's new pictures and new sights and sounds and new worship, new music, new spirituality, going out into the streets and the byways on a daily basis, witnessing at work when you shouldn't be witnessing at work, the new Calvinism, which isn't new and isn't even Calvinism and all these things. We've got to have it because we have lost the core. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So this judgment it's mentioned here is not, maybe I need to go down the aisle again. Maybe I need to get back. No, that's not why he says this. He's speaking to disciples. He's speaking to disciples among whom there was a great temptation to be either judgmental on one side or treat weaker brothers with contempt on the other. And he brings us back to that which should grip the heart, the mind, the imagination, and the life of every disciple. Everything I've believed in this life, everything I've had, everywhere I've gone, all of this will just recede into the background when I stand before him. That's why I don't want to bring him, hey, Lord, I was really careful and I considered myself the supreme court of doctrine in all the land on all the details. We don't want our hatefulness, our meanness, or difference, or I really didn't pray for your lambs, Lord. You didn't pray for them? I laid down my life for them and you couldn't pray? You couldn't use the prayer sheet? I laid down my life for that. You see, these are things... These things are said to us to motivate us and to encourage us to lay aside our haughtiness, to lay aside our narrowness, taking ourselves too importantly. Well, I hold this view, so other people ought to hold this view. And that brings us right back before that which defines every one of us, and that is, we will stand before Him. So are you ready to do so? Oh, no, no, no. I need more time. Well, you know, time is not a means of grace. We often say about our teenagers, let's just give them a little more time. Well, time may work, but time may worsen. Time is no means of grace. When we hear these things that we are supposed to do, what are we supposed to do? Well, I believe in Jesus and I sincerely trust in Him. So what am I supposed to do? I want to offer myself to Him as a living sacrifice. You see, all of this in Romans is just a continuum. I want to fervently serve the Lord because when I see Him, I may be a little sheepish or maybe a lot sheepish. I might have even have regrets. But I don't want to be exposed in that hour. I was narrow, cold, and unloving. No, the Lord has given us gifts, brothers and sisters. He's given us the parable, uh, as the parable speaks of it, talents. He has given us incredible grace. So each one of us is supposed to be doing what? 
occupying until he comes, using those gifts and graces where we are, small graces, big graces, little gifts, larger gifts, whatever they are, for God distributes to each one of us as he wills. But I'm going to stand before him, so I must be about his work. Now, because we're going to stand for, before him, two things are true of everyone who believes this. One, that we seek to live to please him in all things. And not because my salvation depends upon it. Now, we've got to be careful here. This is where the layers are connected, but they are distinct. It's not like if a disciple leads a really godly life and he's really consecrated, that that will get him into heaven. No, it is the blood and righteousness of Christ that obtains our everlasting inheritance. But I do want to please him. I want to please him as a man and in my family, in my work, and as a wife in my family, and whatever calling God has given to me. As children, we want to please Him by the way we obey our parents. Don't think, well, if I could just make it to 30, then I would, wouldn't ever have to answer for the way I treated, oh, yes, you will. The books will be open. I'll have some embarrassments in that. And I'm sure you will as well. But we are to obey to please Him. So I want to please the Lord. When I'm standing in line and the books are open, and here I'm speaking as a man because we don't know how it's all going to work out, but then it will be too late. What can I do? Maybe I can just start talking to the sheep and groom their wool, making them really pretty and... Maybe that will count for something. You see, Jesus has given us his word now, revealed himself to us now, so that we will love him now and be devoted to him now. And then and only then will you be covered in the blood of Christ. But the second thing it does, in addition to motivating us to please him, it motivates us to go to him to run to Him, to turn to Him, because I can't please Him. Because in myself, as Paul has already mentioned in Romans, no good dwells in us. I don't have any strength. I mean, to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. And when I want to be good, evil is present with me. When I don't want to do evil, I still do. I'm wretched. I'm going to stand before Him, so I need to pray, Lord, will You give me help to stand before You? Please give me grace now to walk with a holy and godly life before You and to use Your gifts and talents in a way that will please You. Oh, pray that, my dear disciple. This is the way the disciple lives. The disciple lives drawing from the master the strength to be faithful because the disciple has no strength in himself. That is why the disciples come together and we have various studies and we have worship together because the sheep draw commonly from one another and from the soul source 
Jesus Christ, the living water. But knowing you are going to stand before the judge who is Christ, get close to him now. Draw near to him now. Because look at verse 11. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. This is from <clears throat> Isaiah forty-five twenty-three. And I don't think Paul brings this up here to prove anything but to humble and motivate us. When this was originally written in Isaiah forty-five twenty-three, as I live, saith the Lord, Lord being all capitals there for Yahweh. So in applying this here to Jesus, it is implying Jesus is God. And the only people who reject that are cults, heretics, and blind men. This judge is going to be the mighty God, the incarnate Son of God, and every knee is going to bow to Him and every tongue is going to confess. Now notice here, sometimes we entertain kind of casual views of Jesus. But because the Father has committed all judgment to the Son, John chapter 5, His full glory is going to be revealed and is essential to His full glory as mediator that every knee bow to Him and every tongue confess. And we are going to see that. And then we are going to see him as a lamb that has been slain on the one hand. But on the other hand, look at him. Mighty God. Like Thomas, my Lord and my God, who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? This is to humble our pride. You see, in comparison to that, what I think of your belief of whether you observe Christmas or not, irrelevant. Irrelevant. Because we're going to stand before Him and words will fail. But then again, I'm not sure they will fail. Because we will see the One who loved us and gave Himself for us in His full glory. And we will sing hallelujah. The Lord God Almighty reigns, the Omnipotent One. And we will sing praise unto Him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. This is the day that is coming, professing child of Christ. So what are we supposed to do? Bow now. Confess now. See, everyone is going to bow. Everyone is going to confess. All the billions that have ever lived, whether willingly or by force of His majesty, everyone is going to confess that He is the eternal Son of God. He is the Savior of sinners. He is the Judge of all. It is inevitable, for God has spoken. Everyone is going to bow and make this confession. So again, why is this stated here? To encourage us to bow now. Bow in how you serve one another. Bow in taking the lowest seat. If anyone comes to you with crazy, some crazy idea, and you know that 15 years ago you refuted that with Scripture, 
and your let me tell him. No, let him talk. Just suggest. Hey, I think you should read this. Or if someone is struggling with something that you overcame a long time ago, you like, man, I can't believe you're still struggling with that. Then you must remember. The only reason I'm not still struggling with it is because this very judge had mercy upon my soul. So I am going to humbly say, listen, I can't solve all your problems, brother or sister, but I do know someone who can help and encourage and support you by his almighty power. You see, this is meant to humble us, but the church has lost this. We don't walk by faith anymore. We walk by screens. We walk by paradigms. We walk by these three principles and your life will be fixed. No, it won't. God in 2024 has no different will than he did in 10,024. And that is, the just shall walk by faith. That's the old way. Walk ye in it. So what occupies the faith of the disciples? One of the things is, I'm going to stand before this mighty Savior. And I'm going to bow. And I'm going to confess. And I better be doing it now. I want to do it now because I love Him. I want to please Him. I I don't want to offer unto the Lord like with David. When I I don't want to offer unto the Lord like with David when the plague was stopped and the owner of a field said, Hey, David, you can have my oxen and you can have whatever you want. And David said, No, I'm going to pay you for it. The landowner says, No, you're the king. You just take it. And David said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. What Lord? This Lord. The one who loved us and gave himself for us. He is the shining morning star. He is the dew of his youth from the womb of the morning. Fresh, alive, powerful. I was dead, Jesus said, but I'm alive forevermore. I am alive. Behold, I make all things new. He makes you new. He'll make your family new. And even if you're carrying the heaviest burden in the world, He makes your faith new so that you can carry it as He carries you. That is what we're supposed to think. I'm going to stand before Him. Honest question. I ask this of myself. When was the last time you thought, I'm going to stand before Christ? When was the last time? But you see, this is like the great purpose of all the parables in the Gospels. This is why the church today is so jaundiced like children running around trying to find new meaning. We have forgotten the one thing. The King has given us His Word. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us His gifts. And He says, occupy until I come. We don't need Anything new, beloved, we don't need. We need to be faithful. But we're not going to be inspired to be faithful when the world doesn't like it and when people aren't. Well, wait a minute. The old ways, they won't work anymore. No one will come. 
We've got to find ways to do this and to do that to be relevant. Oh, the king has spoken. Men don't judge us. He does. So I don't want to offer him that which costs me nothing. So let's just make this more personal to us. What do you need to do in your own life? Maybe it's just the way you talk to your wife or your husband. Maybe it's you're mean and nasty at times. Maybe it's that you don't pray for anyone. Maybe you're looking at pornography, but whatever it is you're doing, maybe you're just being lazy. We all struggle with these things in one way or another. I don't want to submit to my husband. I know more than he does. I don't want to love my wife. She won't love me. She's not being faithful to her vows, so why should I be faithful to mine? And I could go on and on and on. This is my lifestyle. I don't want anything to get in the way of it, so I don't want to have children because it will interfere with my lifestyle. Are you going to bring that and lay that at his feet and say, Lord, this is what I give to you? I had all the best this world had to offer. I always lived life on my own terms and everything always worked out for me. That is what I'm offering to you. We are going to be embarrassed. We may not be in a line of saying, earth swallow me up and rocks fall on me, but it will be close. And it won't be because there is hell, a fear of hell. It will be because of the regret. I didn't love him as I should. I see him a little more clearly now, the judge, the glorious one, the almighty one. But I didn't love him before. You know, that is what all sin that we can't seem to get rid of comes down to. Augustine had it right in 1,500 years ago. Because we don't have the pure love that overcomes the impure love. We still love the sin. We still love the gratification of the flesh in whatever form it takes. Let me just make this very simple. We don't love Jesus as we ought. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You are my friends. If you do whatsoever I command you, not well except for this because my children have this problem, or except for this because I only have this amount of money, or except for this because, well, you know, my friends really want me to do this, and I want to be liked by them. We've all got these kinds of issues, and I'm not pointing a finger at anyone in particular, but this is the way we think instead of thinking there's one thing I need to keep before me as a disciple every day. Him. I want to please Him. I want to love my wife because I'm going to stand before Him. I want to love my children and teach them God's ways because I'm going to stand before Him. I want to do the best at my work because I'm going to stand before Him. And is that not what makes me a disciple? It's not that I go to a nice suburban church. If that is that, if that there was, a, if it is that we, that there was a day in my life when he gave me a love for him, for what he has done for me. 
what he has done for all of us, for what he is doing for us right now at the right hand of God. So let's say with David this week, this month, this year, I'm going, not going to offer unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. I've got to get rid of this sin. I've got to change the way I spend money if I need to change the way I try to get other people to like me and to prove of me if I, whatever it is. Okay, whatever, Lord, whatever. This is what quenches pride, ends bickering, creates love, inspires hope, empowers obedience. I'm going to stand before my Lord Jesus and since I'm not ready, and I don't have any strength, I'm going to bring myself before him now. You see, here's a neat thing, and with this I'll close. We know the judge. I believe we've seen too many movies in our lives. There's too much CGI, computer-generated imagery. We live in a CGI reality. Our money, CGI, everything is fake. Much of life is a sham. Wear this and you will look so good, the world says. The world is at our fingertips with our phone. It's all a sham. The reality is, we already know the judge. And he says, disciple, are you struggling? You come to me now. Don't wait. Don't think, well, I've got to live with this junk in my life. No, you don't. That is a choice you make that says, basically, I don't believe, Lord, you're powerful enough to get this out of my life. Oh, but he is. That is what he was dealing with, though, with the disciples all those years he was with them. Lord, we only have a little bit of bread. It's not going to be enough. Lord, the storm is raging. It's going to be too much. But he just kept saying, two loaves, a couple fish, it's enough. And he fed 5,000. And he did this a couple of times. And remember, when the storms were raging, he spoke and all was calm. Don't you know who I am? I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't you know this? Come to me. I love you. I laid down my life for you. And he who spared not his only son, but gave him up for us all, will not much more with him freely give us everything, including the ability to love our wives, submit to our husbands, obey our parents, be faithful in our callings, be wise with our money, be willing to share the gospel with people. He said, without me, you can do nothing, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So let's get back to this disciple. We get sidetracked. Here's the thing. Every single one of us is heading towards one moment and we're all going to be there at the same time. No, we're not going to die at the same time, but this day it is going to be simultaneous. Everyone is going to be there. I hope you are there on the side of the sheep because you have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, I hope we will all be there together, and we will cry together out of joy, and we will laugh together, and we will tremble together. But I want us to offer up to Him, Lord, we really tried to deal with the sin on our lives. 
who really tried to love you more and serve you better and forgive one another's foibles and weaknesses and we met together for prayer. Why? Because I was trying to win favor? No, because I was trying to pay back? No, it was because no one is so wonderful, so lovely as you. Lord, I love you. I want you. I want to please you. I want to obey you. I want to serve you because of you. So he says, come to me now. I'll give you grace. I'll give you strength. It doesn't mean you won't have crosses to bear. It doesn't mean you're not going to have trouble. But I will show you my strength in those things so that you will glorify and enjoy me more. So let's not judge one another. There will be things that come up in our congregation. I know there already have been some. But everyone's not going to have the same view on everything. And of course, there are those secondary issues. Now again, just so I make this clear, if someone comes up and says, I'm going to teach against the Trinity, Ben and I will not tolerate it because obviously there are clearly revealed doctrines of Scripture that are non-negotiable. And that is not what Paul is talking about here. If someone comes along and says, I think it's okay to commit a little fornication because, come on, the Ten Commandments were given 4,000 years ago. Sorry, that's non-negotiable. God has spoken. But when it comes to lesser things, we don't all practice everything the same, and people have different views about the sacraments and what time to meet on the Sabbath day for worship and Sunday school or no Sunday school or other non-essential issues. What are we supposed to do? Love one another. Listen to one another. And remember, we're going to all stand before Christ. And what a privilege that will be to see Him to love Him, to behold the glory of our Savior as the eternal God, the judge of all. I pray we will all be there and we will all be rejoicing together, singing hallelujah, glory and honor to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Do you think you anything you are holding on to is now, I just can't let this go? I can't let this sin go? I can't let this hurt go. Is any of it worth holding on to and keep us from loving Him more and serving Him? Of course not. But if you pray for this, get ready for Him to stir the pot of your life a little bit. Because when you open yourself up to the Lord, there is a sense as a disciple that we can just push off Him, push Him off for a while. Remember, Peter did. But when we open ourselves up to Him, He is going to stir the pot. He's going to stir your family's pot. He's going to stir your mental pot, your health pot, your spiritual pot. He may stir your money pot, your relational pot. So you need to say, Lord, no limits, no restrictions. It's enough for the disciple that he is like his master and the servant as his Lord. What a way to live, my friends. What a wonderful thing to be a Christian. So let's encourage one another in regards to this. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Deliver us from the kind of judgments and mockery and contempt that you warn us against here. 
Keep us ever mindful that we will soon stand before your judgment seat. Make us ready, make us love you, and give us a fervent desire to serve you better each day. We want to please you in all we do, say and think, and to lift you up before this world as the magnificent King that you are. For Christ's sake, amen.